Hello and welcome to our second episode of the Project Alicia podcast. Today I'm joined as usual with my co-founder Lulu Tan and we have a very special guest for you today. So a good friend of mine and former colleague Omer Khan has been kind enough to join us on this podcast. Um, Omer is a cybersecurity expert. He's currently a senior security engineer at, uh, at Essence and um, that's actually where Omer and I met. Um, Omer also works with the with the World Economic Forum, where he acts as a global shaper in the cybersecurity domain. Um, we're really excited to have Omer on this podcast with us today, and um, our hope is to just pick Omer's brains on on some of the issues surrounding um, cybersecurity and and the and the big data industry, how it impacts uh, cybersecurity, and what new attack surfaces it opens and uh, uh, sort of the new frontier of data security um, as we are moving more and more into a data-driven age. Um, so it's going to be a very general conversation, but we hope to make it interesting for both uh, you know people who are in the industry doing technical work and for people who are just interested in in knowing more about more about uh, cybersecurity. So on that note, um, hello, Mayor. Hey, Pratik. Hey, Lulu. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming. And uh, hello, Lulu. How's it Hello. going? Hello. Yeah, very good. Cool. Um, let's let's start, Omer, by asking you a little bit about your background. So, can you tell us a little bit about what work you do, what you've done in the past, and how you got into this? Absolutely. So, I'll start off by how I got into this. So, it was a typical journey. I took computer science in grade uh, 11, 12, and then I got into college for bachelor's of computer application. And at that time, I thought I'm going to be a software developer or a software engineer, because that was the only option presented to me through the first couple of years of university. It was actually in the third year of university where there was this elective course. It wasn't even mandatory, which was uh, encryption and cryptography. And that piqued my interest. And at that time, I started taking the course. I started diving into it. And I found out what cybersecurity is and how expansive a field it is. Post that, I moved to Canada, and that's when I saw that there was a program in Ontario, which was actually all about hardcore cybersecurity, getting to know all the networks, getting to see what Cisco does as an organization, and that's where my journey began. I did a couple of internships in cyber. It was pretty interesting because uh, the expectations at that time were high. They wanted people to come in with, uh, with two years of experience or two years of knowledge of IT systems, but uh, it was really eye-opening to see how over the course of, let's say, the past 30, 40 years, all the organizations were busy in innovating and creating stuff. And now it just shows that they failed on the security part. And now there's so many breaches and so many stuff happen, which just keeps me going because there's so many things to protect out there, so many things to look after. And my story is just being written as it goes. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I saw you have some interesting uh, internship experience. Uh, I think you worked with Element AI which was a hot company for a while and also with the PwC, right? Did I get those two right? I did, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I started off with IMAX, the movie company, and then I moved to Element AI. But the Element AI journey was pretty, uh, pretty interesting in itself. They actually did not have an intern position, but I somehow convinced them that, hey, listen, I'm doing my grad school. I don't have 40 hours a week to commit, but I would be able to do 20 hours a week and they were like sure we are a startup and you know they're very flexible they're keen to bring new talent in and the IT and security director and the security team was like let's take a chance and they opened the doors to me cool uh very interesting 
Um, what about your work at Essence? So I know you're a senior security engineer now. Um, for some context, when I was, uh, I used to be a tech lead of uh, data engineering at Essence, and that's approximately when Omer joined the company. And I remember our technical director coming and mm -hmm. telling me that, uh, hey, we have this amazing new guy come in for for security and pretty I know you're you're really interested in security because I have I've always been very passionate about this stuff. Um, so he was like, why don't you go catch up with him and, and see if you guys can work together. And uh, I remember we, we had a few conversations. I think I learned a lot from Omer about security. And um, I was hoping to try and get uh, the data engineering team involved a little bit. But uh, yeah, I guess I just left, uh, you know, a few months after that. So um, we never really managed to like start any professional collaboration together. But uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did at, uh, or what you're doing at Essence rather? So what I like about the job at Essence is there was an appetite for security before I came in. Uh, from the inside, we do portray ourselves as a technology company more than uh, just an e-commerce and retail fashion uh, global hub. And uh, my first task, I believe, which I think I should have initiative, uh, initiated was uh, bringing a culture of security across the organization. Uh, it, did, uh, it did get off to the right foot. Everyone now at, let's say, Essence is aware of security. There's a good security training going on in, in which we test uh, people in the organization and most of the results are positive. But again, the idea at Essence was to kick off a good security initiative, make sure uh, the policies and procedures are in place, make sure that the operations are running in an automated and smooth way. I know the DevOps team at Essence is very automation focused. They don't like doing that much manual work because automation saves time, but also it reduces human error. So that's the methodology I'm also using in the security approach. We're looking at a lot of automation. We're looking at ways in which we can constantly uh, check our platform for security issues, vulnerabilities, bugs, holes, logical flaws, and we're just taking it day by day. And with security, uh, it's a new challenge every day. You see new threats emerging every day. And one of the biggest concerns in security as of now is still security engineering and, sorry, social engineering and ransomware. So we're just trying to stay ahead of the curve on that. Hmm. Very interesting. We're going to come back to that subject very soon, social engineering. Very, very interesting mm -hmm. subject. But I wanted to ask you a little more about, um, so with uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, I know we talked mm -hmm. about this just before the podcast. Uh, you said you're acting as a global shaper now. Can you explain what that means and like what opportunities you know people have to collaborate with the World Economic Forum? Absolutely. So the Global Shaper is a hub in a lot of in a lot of metropolitan cities. What they do is they choose to bring people together and then bring change into the society. So my project with the Global Shapers currently is focused on cybersecurity and addressing the skill shortage. There's uh, close to two million jobs available in North America, according to a report in 2019, for cybersecurity, with not enough resources to fill that. They've even projected that even though more and more people are now going to school to learn cybersecurity. The gap is just going to grow over the next few years, depending on the number of organizations that are coming up, the new startups that are coming up. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make cybersecurity more diverse, more open, and more inclusive to people from other educational backgrounds as opposed to just STEM fields. And for this, we've created a skills mapping framework in which we show that people from a policy background or people from an accounting background do have transferable skills which can be used in cybersecurity. And eventually, once they're in the role, there's a great amount of resources out there. And there's a willingness from the employers to invest in the employees to make them upskill and then transition their career into uh, different parts of cyber. Hmm. 
Very interesting. Yeah, this skill shortage thing is, um, I mean, I'm sure even like in, in data and, and ML, we, we see this, but uh, Lulu, I'm sure you'd agree with me that like uh, looking at a, at a field where you have 2 million skilled jobs available with no one to fill them, that's even more intense than what we see in the in the data world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. So, Omer, I'm, I'm wondering, how can someone who's not from STEM background can get started if it's if it's just a hobby or if it's a maybe a side project they want to work on? What would be a good starting point for them? So for sure, what we do is we provide some cyber lingo, basically definitions on the internet, which you can find for cybersecurity. And we try to get them accustomed to that. While getting accustomed to that, because they're reading into it, they also try to, because he, like people are curious. So once they're looking into the definitions, they also uh, see new things and they start searching about that. A lot of people relate to a lot of common terminologies like uh, VPN. Because uh, because of the pandemic, everyone's working from home, and a lot of organizations are choosing VPN as the secure protocol for communication. And people look into that; they relate to that, and that's what piques their interest. And then they go from there. Our next step usually is we've set up a small challenge. So before joining the Global Shapers, I was doing uh, mentorship on my own. I just used to post regularly on LinkedIn, saying that if there's any students out there, please reach out. And what I would do. In, the, in those sessions is I try to challenge the mentee and I'd give them a technical challenge. I tell them, hey, I'm going to provide you some resources. Can you go and set up a full-blown enterprise SIM system? Free, of course. I got some credits from some uh, different vendors and I would just provide them to that and I would guide them through the step. The interesting part about that was they would struggle a lot, but then there was also a part in which they would refuse to ask for help because they keep digging and keep digging and find the solution. And at the very end, they'd come out with a product, which is amazing. So that really helped mm -hmm. That really helped me as a mentor to understand what the challenges people are facing. And as a mentee, they now learned a new skill, which is hot and in demand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting approach to training people because you're almost like forcing them to come up with solutions before spending any time on on theory and stuff like that. Um, Lulu, did you have any other questions about Omer's work and background? Yeah, what, what would be the most interesting project you have ever worked on or for cybersecurity? That's what I really wanted to know. It seems so exciting and challenging at the same time. So uh, I'm a junkie for investigation work. I know it's a lot of manual work, but I think anything that has to do with forensics and investigation is uh, is where I uh, love spending most of my time on. I do like the secured testing part, and I do bug bounties on on the weekends. Uh, bug bounty, if uh, if you don't know what that is, it's basically there's a lot of organizations out there like Apple, Facebook, and all the big organizations. What they're doing is they're partnering with uh, uh, these bug bounty programs in which they say that, hey, to all the security researchers out there, go and attack our website, but do not bring it down. Try to find flaws for us and report it to this program. And based on the report that you've given us, we'll award you a monetary award or maybe swag or something. And what this does is it joins the community of the organizations who are trying to secure themselves and also people who don't want to go into a nine to five job or are not ready to go into a nine to five job, but want to practice their security and cybersecurity skills. So that's one thing which I really love. And to answer your question about the most interesting project, I would say I was uh, at an internship 
uh, it cannot be named, but there was a crypto miner attack that was going on. And it was back in, I think it was a couple of years ago. And crypto miners at that time was were very notorious. What they would do is they would replicate a miner on an open server and then start extracting all the power, all the computing power from a server to mine cryptocurrency and send it back to a specific wallet. Uh, during the investigation, what I found was uh, the crypto miner was very cleverly placing all its uh, essential files in the temp folder in a, in a Linux system. So the folder would get refreshed every 30 days and it would get deleted and the intrusion detection system would find it. After a lot of manual work and digging through the image of the system, I finally found where everything was being hosted. But because it wasn't too sophisticated, I was also able to find the wallet in which the currency was being stored. And we actually found about 10 to 15,000 US dollars worth of cryptocurrency over there, which we ended up reporting to the authorities. But uh, it was pretty interesting like to see that uh, it was a really uh, complicated attack, but th it wasn't sophisticated enough that they uh, erased all the kinks. Wow. Wow. That's insane. Yeah, I know. And to do that as an intern was just crazy. I mean, I was just like, I think I spent like one day working like 11 p.m. or 12 p.m. 12 a.m. just to just because it was so interesting. So what techniques did what techniques? Yeah, yeah, what techniques did you use to hunt those bugs? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So, so for sure, there's this uh, baselining methodology. So for every system, it's uh, ideal for every system on your network. It's ideal to have a baseline to understand how the system performs, to what calls it's making, and to how much resource it's consuming. Uh, so that was already in place. After that, what we did was uh, there was a rule set which would alert us if the system would you know, spike or it would go down. So if it spiked up, that means that there was something extra happening over the system. And if the spike persisted for a long period of time, then we knew something was wrong. So we did see a spike in the system. We did see that a lot of the other service calls were being blocked. So uh, I jumped in, I created, an rep I created an in time image of the system and I took it offline. When I took it offline, what it did was it, it stopped the connection to the attacker or to the system. And that way they couldn't pull any files out of the system anymore. And everything that was there was already there. After that, I basically ran some scans on the, on the system to see if there were, what were the 10 most recent files created in the past hour. And then I kept going back step by step, step by step. So it was basically re-engineering something and trying to understand what are the new additions that happened. And uh, then I actually went through manual folders. So as I mentioned, like I wasn't looking to go into the temporary folder, but I stumbled across it and I found a file over there which uh, piqued my interest. I can't remember the name of the file, but once I Googled the file and tried to find it out, it wasn't any file that was necessary for the Linux system to have or the server to have. And that's where I started digging more. And then I found a key for the wallet. I found the address of the wallet. I went to this website, uh, which had, you know, you could search wallets. I searched the wallet and then it asked me for the key. And I was just trying hidden trial. At first, I didn't even think of putting the key in. But once I put the key in, I saw it unlocked the wallet and it showed me this currency called Monero. And I, I was just like, there's, there was like 15K right in front of me at that time. And I'm like, wow. So these these attacks um, are they managed by like botnets or is it just a human manually SSHing into these Linux servers and and dropping stuff into mine crypto? 
So there is a human aspect to it for sure. There is someone who's initiating these attacks and then the botnet co- uh, part comes later. It's uh, usually an army of other servers which have been infected and then they start scraping the internet. Uh, a very nice example, well, not for the botnet part, but to see what's out there on the internet is Shodan. So Shodan basically, it's a search engine for all the things connected to the internet. And uh, once you go on the website, you can see specific types of computers, specific type of servers, specific type of uh, systems and metadata of the systems available, which are publicly available. And what attackers were using Shodan a lot for was to break into webcams because there were so many webcams open on the internet two years ago that you could just get into it. So I think for the attackers, they did start off manually, but then they saw that because there's so many targets out there, they just started uh, creating armies of botnets and then just telling them that, hey, go scan this website, this website, this website. And if you find something uh, similar to this, you know, try this attack. It could be something as simple as a grep command for a specific string of characters that could lead them to the attack. Um, but so you said this, uh, they're trying to like activate webcams. Uh, what use does a botnet have of webcam footage? Oh, it wasn't, so they weren't trying to activate webcams, but basically security cameras. So I think it was, I think three years ago is when people started caring about locking down security cameras and putting them into an internal network. But before that, what would happen is people would uh, set up a security camera, have live footage over the internet, but never secure that. There's actually Mm. a really neat website, which currently indexes all the security cameras in all the cities which are left vulnerable. I don't know if it's safe to give it out in a podcast, but there is mm-hmm. one publicly available. Okay, so basically the idea is that like if someone was to commit some kind of a physical crime, like a robbery or something, they could like disable the security or like uh, tarnish the footage before they go in, obfuscate the footage, something like that. Yes, and also it's also to get on the network. Let's say you could once you get on. Let's say once you take oh, control of the security camera, you could pivot onto different parts of the network. So the right. first idea is to get privileges to escalate it and then have a lateral movement through different systems. Hmm. Okay, that's a, I guess it's a very common idea, but uh, to do it through security cams is a very interesting way. Cause I know that like with a lot of IOT devices, internet of things, this is a common risk, right? Like people hack smart fit fridges to get uh, access into like the, like admin level access mm-hmm. into the IOT cloud that manages your home's hardware, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There was a there was a pretty interesting one in which uh, there was this smart thermostat at a house, and the person who installed that was away from home and was on a vacation for a couple of weeks. And the day he came back, he found that his thermostat was set all the way to ninety five degrees Fahrenheit, and the house was to the point of actually burning. That's how hot it was getting in there. And then later, it it realized the person realized that it was actually someone who gained access to their system and then actually did that for them instead of uh, them controlling it. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so, you know, as as regular people, when we when we use sort of smart devices and smart technology and stuff mm-hmm. like IoT, IoT technology, like how much of this can we worry about? Like, what can we do to protect ourselves from malicious attacks? Or is it something that like we should be more worried about if we had if he had something to protect, like if we were just common people living our lives, do you think people won't yeah. bother to hack our our fridges and our uh, smartwatches and all that? It's a good question. So uh, 
not all script kiddies and attackers out there are looking for a cause. Some people just do it because it's a chaotic nature. So I've seen it happen in the past. Let's say with the thermostat story I was just giving, there is no valid reason for someone to find a thermostat and just turn the heat all the way to the max. It was probably like a fun gimmick and someone trying to do that just to show that it can happen as a security vulnerability. I personally currently do not own any smart home devices uh, from Google, Alexa, or even smart bulbs. But for a common person, I think uh, the best way is to just put it on the guest network. Just segregate mm -hmm. your network inside the, on your router and put it on the guest network and keep all your main devices or maybe your computer, work computer and stuff like that on your main, main network. That, mm -hmm. that does provide a certain level of security as opposed to keeping it all on the same network. Mm -hmm. On the topic of like these, you know, Google Home Minis and Alexas and stuff like that, um, Lulu and I have talked about this before because like this kind of intersects with our domain, which is uh, sort of big data, you know, data engineering and machine learning and MLOps. Um, it would be interesting to find out from you as a cybersecurity expert, what new risks do big data ecosystems bring to the cybersecurity world? And to preface that question, like, I can give you an idea of the kind of things I'm worried about when I see an Alexa or a home mini at home. Um, it's yep. not so much that I don't worry that much about the security aspect, which I'm sure is a huge concern, but I just worry about like uh, the fact that we're giving away so much of our personal data, which can be used to train extremely powerful machine learning models and, and can just be used to like commoditize our existence in ways that we didn't think about before. Um, uh, both Lulu and I have talked about this extensively, and maybe Lulu, you could also like talk a little bit about like the machine learning um, aspect of it. Like in terms of when you see these devices like Alexas and Home Minis and you know Siri and stuff everywhere collecting our data, like they're always listening devices. Uh, what what potential dangers do you see from the machine learning side standpoint? Yeah, so for the machine learning stand side, it's more of using them to collect information and collect data. Then they can. And once they have those data, they can be used to train lots of models to to do things. And for this, I really want to ask Omer, do you actually do you have any um, thoughts about how AI or how ML will affect the uh, the future for cybersecurity in terms of um, both for the good and for the bad? Like how the attackers can use AI to maybe do more powerful. ML models to um, get your information, but then also using ML for the good, like on the good side, how they can use it to protect, maybe. would love to hear some thoughts on this aspect. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I do think, uh, I believe I was talking to Pratik last week or the week before, and I did bring up uh, just like a foundational step I took towards collecting data and trying to show people the impact it can have and this was when I was doing my postgrad diploma in Ontario. And we had a trade show. And it was pretty interesting because there were all these people coming in from like technology organizations, some reputed companies, and they were here to see what people are presenting. What my team and I decided to do was uh, something on data collection and how we could leverage that against people. And what we did was we created a simple form and we printed it out. The form went in the way as first we asked a person that, hey, what's the name? Do you have a pet? Yes or no? If they said yes, we would like, hey, is your pet a dog, a cat, or is it some different type of uh, pet? They would answer that. Then we'd be like, what's the name of your pet? 
And then they'd give us the name of the pet. And then we'd take a break and we'd be like, okay, we're doing a survey. And if you give us additional details and you're comfortable with it, we can provide you a coupon, which will give you free shipping from one of the chosen vendors for uh, pet food. And people were like, oh, for sure. Like, you know, who, who doesn't love free shipping in today's time? So they went ahead and we started asking them more intricate questions. We were like, what's the date of birth that you have? We need it for uh, some purposes. What's the email address that's best reachable for you? And we also went ahead and asked them, because uh, we're providing free shipping, can we get your postal address? They started giving us all these information. And this was just a tactic and social engineering tactic of gathering data from them. What they failed to see was that we could use this data and we actually proved it later on in the trade show that now because we have their date of birth, we have their email address, we have uh, all these sorts of data that we collected, we could come up with the password list. There's this really neat tool called uh, SET. It's called Social Engineering Toolkit, which gives you exactly the same format to enter. Once you enter all this information into it, it automatically goes behind the scene and generates a very long list of passwords. I think the longest which I got was like 30,000 possible password combinations with the data I provided them. So mm. it does pose a threat as a ground level. So this is where I started, like in a very small proportion, but people are now doing it on a larger scale. People are setting out quizzes out there. People are setting out new technologies to you know, listen into what people are doing take keywords and actually put it together to come up with something meaningful. And it's good on, let's say, to Lulu's question, it's good on the security side in some cases, if we, let's say, deploy a machine learning algorithm on a network, it could listen into all the types of network calls that are being made. And if something not natural is happening, it could take action against it. But from the outside, if it's not on an internal network, people could set listeners outside and actually do the same for opposite, for the other people. They could gather all their information. They could scrape profiles and then go ahead and provide a targeted campaign against them or provide something targeted, which would pique their interest and then gather more information. Hmm. Do you ever worry about the, the sort of attack surface that like very large data lakes have become? Because, I mean, we've never had a situation before where a couple of large companies own so much personal data um, that's all aggregated and stored in like, let's say some S3 bucket somewhere or some, you know, some kind of data lake. Um, do you ever worry about not just in terms of like just being hacked, but also like the kind of backdoors that let's say government agencies have or um, just all of this stuff? Does it ever worry you from a from a cybersecurity aspect? Uh, so privacy a lot. Cybersecurity, I think, because a lot of organizations have enterprise contracts with them. So there's additional things. There's legislations and laws that are in place to keep them safe and secure. But in terms of just like general, there's so much data being ingested that just a small leak of data could lead to so much harm that could be done on so many people. We see in the news every now and then about how uh, a million records of this, this, this website was leaked. And then people go and actually use that. A lot of people don't even get to hear about that. And that's where the bad guys come in and they leverage that data to use it against them. Maybe your password was leaked. How do you know if you didn't get a notification from the website? So people use that and they try that password on every possible, they actually don't try it, they feed it into a system. The mm -hmm. system goes ahead and tries that password on all the possible emails that you could have and they only need to be successful one time. It doesn't matter if it, the password failed 99 times. 
Hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, because a lot of our audience is people like us who are building these systems out, right? Who are building out mm-hmm. uh, big data systems. Do you have any recommendations for things we can do to, to secure our own systems and, and try and mitigate some of the risks you're, you're outlining? Absolutely. So on the security side, there's a lot of things like, uh, the key one is to start off with access logging and providing or following the principle of least privilege. So that's only giving the right amount of access to the right amount of people. You don't need extra people who don't need access or are not working with the data to get access to that. There's other methodologies and technologies like encryption, which you could implement on these systems. What that does is outside your environment and without the key, the data makes no sense. It's all mumble jumble for anyone else who takes a look into it. And at the same time, when we move towards the privacy side, we have two main concepts, which I'm trying to drill down with every conversation, and that's anonymization and gathering only the right amount of data. A lot Mm -hmm. of organizations and a lot of people, what they're doing out there is either they're oversharing data or the companies are collecting too much data or requiring, like, you know, forms to collect that, uh, that amount of data. And that's causing a huge concern because once it's in the system, it's easy to lose track of it and it just lies somewhere in the corner. And in the case of a breach or in the case of, you know, a malicious internal actor, that data can be released and can be harmful to the people. Hmm. Yeah, I we recently published uh, an article about end-to-end encryption for for consumers, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's an important conversation even to have with like uh, the engineers themselves to say that hey, a lot of the things that you're collecting or even the communications that you're managing, like if it could be end-to-end encrypted, uh, why not do it that way, right? Like it's always you reduce liability for your own organization, but also like uh, it's just the right the right thing to do in the long run. No, absolutely. So uh, the good thing is I have seen this wave of new privacy. Uh, focused individuals come into organizations of all sizes where they are specifically there to sit with dev teams, sit with engineers, data engineers, and make them understand that uh, what type of data is actually required to a certain uh, to perform a certain function, and again, what security controls can be implemented. For example, when you're talking about the end-to-end encryption, uh, in theory, it's the best idea to implement it ASAP, but a lot of engineering teams or a lot of organizations which aren't new, which haven't been founded in the past 10 years, they do have some old infrastructure in place. They have some Mm. historic systems in place and that's a concern for them. And this consists a lot of big financial institutions, a lot of big uh, e-commerce, a lot of big uh, retail stores that if they choose to just go ahead and turn the encryption switch on, let's say, if it was that easy, it might just break a lot of things in the system. Like 30% of their systems might work from the get-go, but then there might be some systems and some features that they're losing because uh, the system wasn't set up correctly, or maybe the keys aren't being transferred properly. So I see why there's skepticism around it, but it's not a problem that cannot be fixed. Hmm. Yep, so what would be the trade-off, you say, between like having a secure um, system versus performance in terms of... Because I know, for example, like in, in ML, if you want to do encryption on the data, maybe using TensorFlow, then you kind of sacrifice some performance or some accuracy in terms of the model. So how would what would the case be um, in terms of cybersecurity and, and the setup, infra setup or system mm-hmm. setup in a company? So in terms of cybersecurity, it's all win-win with encryption. 
I mean, there is a chance that let's say uh, you lose the encryption key completely and you're locked out of your system. That is that is a rare case, but that's where the key management part comes in when people are actually assigned their job role is to make sure that these things are set up. Uh, in terms of performance, even on the network side, encryption does add a delay to the flow of uh, data packets because uh, for a, let's say for a firewall on the network to identify if something is malicious or non-malicious, it has to look into it has to decrypt the packet and understand what's going through. So when you're setting it through, it does increase the amount of resources being used. But the trade-off, I don't believe it's that big. The amount of security it's providing is self-sufficient and it's self-explanatory why it's needed. But there's also, again, a cost part associated to the business, which is pretty hefty, in my opinion. There are It is getting cheaper as, the, as new technologies and better ways of implementing are coming out. But most companies are hesitant just because of the fact that it does take a huge amount of uh, resources and money from their side. Cool. Okay, cool. So, Omer, I'm going to ask you a little more about something that I've been thinking about a lot. And we, we spoke about this uh, briefly, I think, over the phone last week and, and really it caught my attention. And it, it was like a message of uh, sort of hope and optimism for me. So uh, you, were, you were talking about how... Uh, the cybersecurity landscape has changed or is changing a lot, um, you know, uh, given the times. And you're talking about how the the roles for cybersecurity professionals have become a lot broader than they used to be. So, you know, we need people who are policy experts. We need people who are IT experts. We need people who are engineering experts. And you also said that there's going to be a big role for people who are experts at at, at uh data data uh, sort of data domains right so like data engineers data scientists and machine learning engineers can you tell us a little more about like what kind of opportunities people in the data ecosystem have in your field of work from a career perspective absolutely so what we're seeing right now as a, as we mentioned like there's a shift in the way that people are looking at cybersecurity before it used to be if you're looking at cybersecurity, people would think only IT security. People would think a sysadmin who knows how to secure something, and that's where they would stop. But now, as you mentioned, there's policy, there's risk management, there's the security architecture and design, then there's security testing, security operations, and also data security and data engineering security, which is coming into play. Uh, a really nice shift for people in data engineering right now is, again, they know the systems in and out. They know what type of data they're collecting. They understand the work that they're doing. So now it's time to apply a security mindset to it, to understand, okay, if you're collecting this data, what impact could it happen? Could, uh, could it have if it's being leaked or if a malicious individual gets access to it? And something which I'm seeing with uh, these European laws, GDPR, the China law for privacy, the Canadian law that's coming up in the next couple of years, is they're emphasizing how much you need data security how much you need to map your data and how much you need to know in the sense that where your data lies and what you're doing with that data. And they're coming out with a pretty significant amount of fines for it. Uh, they're not holding back. There's actually a website called Enforcement Tracker, which uh, actively tracks all the fines which are being given out in uh, on the basis of the GDPR law in the European Union. And you can see that some companies like Google, Facebook, these people have been fined like millions and millions of dollars. So Data, data experts can now pivot into cybersecurity by just learning about the things and implementing the industry best practices. Hmm. 
Do you know any like good resources, books, videos, or something you could recommend for people who are trying to like? Let's say you know uh, our listener is a data scientist or something of that sort, or a data engineer, um, and they're interested in in uh, sort of pivoting into a cybersecurity focused career. Um, where can they? How can they get started? Uh, for sure. So there's uh, places. So there are a lot of open source uh, open source resources available online. For me personally, the best one to get started is YouTube. I literally just go there and I type. I type data. Let's say we type data engineering security. Start looking into some of the uh, some of the content. And as I was mentioning at the start of the podcast, when we were talking about the Global Shaper Initiative, there are some keywords which are going to catch, uh, which are going to which are going to be going to be catchy and are going to stick out. And then start digging into that. So again, there's different domains of data security when you go into it as i mentioned there's the encryption part which makes the data secure the way that data is hosted or being transferred there's the privacy part in which it makes sure that you're collecting the right amount of data for the right amount of purposes then there's also the access part which is core security we're trying to where you're trying to understand how much data you need access to or like who you're providing access to data but i think the first the first and foremost would be to go into google go onto youtube and just search these keywords uh, in terms of books and recommendations, I can definitely uh, provide some. I know I have it somewhere in my library, and I can uh, maybe plug it to you later, and you can uh, put right it on. on the podcast description. Yeah, we'll. Uh, for, so for those of you who are listening on projectalicia.com, you'll find this podcast listed, and we'll we'll add whatever resources Omer sends our way. Um, and yeah, thanks a lot for for helping out people who are trying to do this. Let's let's speak a little more about uh, the regulation side of it. So. This, uh, for me, has been a bit of a pet peeve because, um, you know, I've been working as a data engineer um, for, a, for a while now, for about half a decade. And uh, during, like, when GDPR and stuff first started becoming a thing, right, when people started to enforce it, it struck me as odd that the people who were coming up with these regulations were from a different generation, mostly. These were policy experts, and I, I respect that. But a lot of times, like, the things they would ask for would be so difficult for a company to do that they would just sort of like, you know, uh, sweep it under the rug for a while. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, companies that have had like really old school systems where the data is kind of all over the place. You know, it's it's basically it'll be too expensive or like technically infeasible to go and clear records on demand. They had to like re-architect their systems from the ground up. And, you know, a lot of big companies have the budget and the resources to do this. But a lot of the mid-sized companies, uh, they they had large enough infrastructure, but not the kind of budget to be able to like carry out these operations on time. Um, I sometimes worry that regulation is not going to be enough for for two reasons. Firstly, because it's implemented in ways that are unrealistically difficult sometimes for companies to to mm-hmm. uh, to work with. And for the other, uh, my other concern with regulation is that things change so damn fast in both data in cybersecurity and in data that how do you keep up like as a regulator with with changing needs and changing ecosystems um what are your thoughts on this and this is an open question to both you guys by the way for sure uh i so i do agree part with the when when you say the statement that it is being the data regulations are being created by people who might let's say be out of touch with what's happening in today's world but i still believe it is essential for the uh, consumers to have the power to actually request the deletion of the data. So to facilitate that, what they're doing is 
if you read into these laws, like if you read into GDPR, what they say is that you don't have to go ahead and delete all the data instantly. So if a data subject requests access or deletion to their data, uh, the company can still choose to keep that data for a certain amount of time, as long as it's justifiable. So they're trying to play fair game on both, both sides. So they're giving the consumers the power to request their data to understand what's what they've provided to an organization or what the organization has collected through cookies, through surveys, and you know, just like general browsing behavior. And to the organization, what they've given is, if you can prove that you need this data, you can justify the reason for having this data for a certain amount of time, a retention period, then you're okay to have it. Because again, like uh, you can't go to an organization and be like, hey, uh, delete all this data and just and just like walk away because an organization has its duty. There's taxes, there's uh, fraud purposes. There's so many things that need to be taken into account. So again, the organization just has to prove that they have the need for this data. And I think they're good to go after that. Yeah, I think the the enforcement part is always the hard part. Like, how are we really going to enforce what's happening inside a company? Like, no one really knows except mm. for them. So policies and regulations are there. But the online space, I think it's such a, it's it's a place that's not bounded by any laws or any strict mm -hmm. punishment or yeah uh, reinforcement in that way yeah i mean if you if you start like i think there are countries that have very strict control over their internet that's a conversation for another day but i think what we see in in the internet as we see it in the in north america and europe and places like this is it's it's still like just emerging out of its wild west stage i think it's starting to become more like organized and structured and stuff like that but uh, as to Lulu's point, like I think behind the scenes, like, and I'm sure like both of us have seen this in the industry quite a bit. Like, it's really difficult um, to enforce. So I'll give you an example, right? Like, let's say you know you work for a company, some kind of an e-commerce company, and you have a data science team that are working with your with your behavior, like customer analytics data, and someone queries a data set, like a data scientist queries a data set. What they're going to do is they're going to have this data now locally on their computer through like a you know a Jupyter notebook or something like that and um, even if there was a gdpr request made and that data was deleted from the system this data scientist in question will have no way of like actually identifying like he might have downloaded a csv sometime in some folder and forgotten about it right so like even if he was asked hey did you delete all this data he'd be like i wouldn't know where to start like because i have so much data on my mm -hmm. computer that i just have been experimenting with um, and I, I think this is also like the onus for this lies on the on the professionals end as well. Like as as data practitioners, we should probably start thinking about these things a bit more. Um, but currently, the state of affairs is like that. And like, yeah, just to sort of reinforce what Lulu was saying, it uh, it's it's going to be hard to see this change. Like, there's, there'll have to be like a huge culture shift within our industry. Absolutely. So there is the training part for sure, and I completely agree with it. Uh, the way the regulators are currently working is if something comes to their attention, then they start investigation, uh, investigating into what's happening. And if there's something uh, not according to plan, there's a reason why all these big companies like uh, Google and Amazon have been in the spotlight just because there's so many users. Google has billions of users. Facebook has billions of users. So they just need a complaint from like a small like 0.01% of their consumers or mm. uh, of the users and it's good to go. They're in investigation. Uh, 
on the other side of things, as you mentioned, that if people take the CSV off and like, you know, sorry, there's a CSV document with all the data on their computer, uh, there are ways enterprises are now adopting secure data loss prevention techniques. And because it because the computer or this work, workstation that the employee is working on, it is owned by the organization, so mm-hmm. they can put some restrictions. So what these data loss prevention tools do is you can configure a scanner and feed it, let's say, the format of data. So if you know that the format of the email is going to be uh, xyz.abc at, uh, let's say, demo.com, so you can mm-hmm. feed it that. And that that's going to scrape through all the files on your computer with a certain level of permission given by the uh, by the uh, sorry by the sysadmin, and that's what goes and crawls and finds through uh, finds through the data. So it's basically taking a step further than data mapping, but it actually finds it and it reports it back. Uh, we've seen similar tools with all these uh, cloud services. So we know that uh, there's Google Drive, there's OneDrive. They actually provide similar services in which you could set up a scanner and say that hey. This is my organization. Uh, go and find a, a social insurance number. So it knows what a social insurance number for Canada or a social security number for USA looks like. It's mm. going to look at all the metadata of each document in Google Drive, and it's going to come back with potential reports saying that, okay, there is a high confidence that this document has this uh, information and it's being publicly shared by someone inside the organization. So we are taking from the technology pers- uh, aspect a step forward in this area. But again, I do agree that unless there's an ample amount and sufficient amount of training, we won't be able to achieve the golden figure where everything is as uh, secure and privacy focused as we want it to be. What are these tools called again? The data monitoring for like surveilling on, on a computer or something like that? So uh, they're DLPs, data loss prevention tools. Okay. And uh, they started off with a different purpose. The different uh, The purpose initially was to prevent data leaving a certain system. It would have blockers in place. And my way around that was simple. Like, you know, if you can't copy something from notes or if you can't take a screenshot, you can always pull your phone out and still take a picture of that data. So if Mm -hmm. someone's motivated enough, they will find a way to do it. But that's the whole thing. So they started off with a way to prevent data leaving a system, but now they have additional capabilities. For Google Drive, I think, if you look into the enterprise version, it's just called DLP, that's it. And uh, you can look at all the sets of uh, uh, features that it has. Wow. Lulu, did you know about this? Yeah, not at all. But like, yeah. I, it was at the back of my mind. Like, for example, there's some site that maybe have a really great paragraph and I, I sometimes try to copy, like when like right-clicking and they won't allow me. So I just pull out my phone and take a picture. Yeah. And what what can they do about that? So yeah, so yeah, that was that was an interesting thing that you mentioned. Is there's always a workaround on how this, um, how how just how secure and how private it gets. Maybe like people yeah. would always found loopholes around doing things like that. Lulu and I actually like we we talked about this problem once. We were thinking about like uh, what's a potential solution to like the issue. Like we talked about this issue in the context of like uh, how data scientists basically operate with data and you have to give them, you can't keep them on a very short leash because a lot of their job is exploration, right? Like you have to give them the room and the liberty to like play with data sets. But we were thinking, hey, what if, uh, you know, there was a way to like make it such that they couldn't create liabilities, like privacy liabilities for their for their end users. Um, and I think like this data loss prevention um 
tooling that you were talking about is an interesting approach to it. Like it's, I'm completely new to it. I'm very surprised that it exists because I've never heard about it before. But uh, uh, I definitely, I'm going to check it out. Like probably right after this podcast, I'm going to Google it and see what it's all about. Um, yeah, thanks for bringing there's that to our also, attention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's also a neat way. I, so I've heard about this in theory. I haven't actually gotten the chance of using it, but there's a way of containerizing apps on uh, desktops. So the way that works is, let's say, because you're saying that we need to allow data scientists to go and explore so they could set up something on a containered environment, which has a feature set to self-explode or like self-destroy itself in 30 days. So I know I've seen something similar on mobile device management in which uh, because a lot of users don't want organizations to control their mobile and a lot of organizations also want to make sure that if people are using uh, the corporate email, corporate drive, and corporate data on their phone, it's secure. So there's solutions out there that just drop a containered app on your phone and anything inside that phone, inside that app is controlled or has a certain amount of control from your organization. So I believe there's something similar for desktops, which you can do in which you can drop applications and certain features into a containered environment. And then you could set rules to say that, okay, every 15 days, go through a cleanup, leave only the essential services and anything like uh, Excel files, CSV or uh, JSON, just delete all of that and just like, you know, purge it. Okay, but potentially think about something. So like, let's say you had a malicious actor, right? Who was using one of these tools. If they were like using a monitor, there's a lot of tools. Uh, there's a lot of software out there that just allows you to like record your monitor screen externally. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not even thinking about something as simple as a webcam, but you can maybe like plug something into your monitor that just records all the like all the display data, and uh, they could use that to like bypass the whole tool. No, so the same problem still exists. What do you think about that? Absolutely. So yeah. uh, there again, there are ways. So with uh, endpoint protection, so. Uh, I'm happy that security has come such a long way that I'm able to answer all these questions without actually, you know, coming up with a new product and yeah. <laughs> on my own. But there are there are endpoint protection tools which prevent this from happening. So there's inter- industry leading uh, vendors which provide services in which it's like an antivirus, but it also provides uh, detection and response. So if someone's plugging in something as malicious as this on your computer, then it could just trigger an alarm. What I do, uh, what I do respect though, is there is one cable called the OM.G cable. It's a basic lightning to USB uh, cable. And this was, I believe, uh, demoed in DEF CON last year or the year before. And what that does is uh, if you look into it, it's basically, it has a mini computer inside it. And once connected to your phone or once connected to your laptop, it starts harvesting data and sending it back to a remote host. So it's very interesting, and it's all inside a lightning cable. It's that wow. amazing. I think I again, saw there are this. Defenses for it. I think mm-hmm. I saw this uh, the the conference that talk that you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's frightening because now you're talking about something that's like on the hardware level. Like you'd have yeah. to go really deep to find it, even to find such a such an intrusion, right? And from what I understand, is once it connects to your, I think it it displays itself as a keyboard. So it recognizes itself as a keyboard. And most of the scanners, I don't believe they would block a keyboard from being connected to the uh, to the computer. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Lots of, uh, lots of things that I guess we just never 
consider on our in our day to day. Um, so okay, moving forward, um, let's talk a little more about the. So we talked about regulation um, and like the sort of uh, pitfalls of regulation and and how how it can be improved. Um, let's say you know someone listening to this podcast is currently studying like law or you know public policy or some kind of a social science. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there there is a lot of like room for them to to build careers in the cybersecurity space today. Um, I just think a lot of people in, in those domains don't think about it. Like they don't know that it exists. And so they go into more traditional uh, fields of like public policy and stuff. Um, do you think, uh, you know, obviously on, on one hand you have, uh, you have nations sort of like governments that require uh, public policy experts for cybersecurity. What about corporate uh, policy? Like do corporations require policy experts for, for regulation and security? Absolutely. So I all, I'm, I'm, I'm of the strong belief that policies are the foundation for any, for implementing security and like creating a culture of security in any organization. It's where I started, uh, not in terms of my work experience, but like every time I start a new security project, or if I'm in talks with, you know, some company that requires some help, and they want me to just consult them about something, my first go to is get policies in place and get sign off from the executive team. And the reason for this is, it smoothens out a lot of future problems. Once you're actually going and implementing security functionality, you're tying down more systems, you're restricting users from getting access to more data, to excessive data. You have a reason and you have approval on the back of that. And more often than not, when I have conversations with my industry peers out there in multiple organizations, a lot of them are struggling with the policy part, not because, uh, not because there's not enough people to do it, but just because a lot of people lack the expertise for that specific part or how to come up with a policy. And it's the same with a lot of technical people. They prefer to do hands-on work, but once it comes to translating that into a document, which is mm -hmm. then understood by the technical, not the technical stakeholders, my apologies, by the executive committee, that's where they're lacking on the skill set. And people from these backgrounds, when we're talking about uh, uh, from a policy background, they could come in, they could leverage that skill, and they know what the approval process looks like. They know what the change management process looks like, and they could help expedite it probably two, three times. This word change management, uh, can you explain to us a little bit better what that means? Uh, I think previously we were talking about how technologies are changing, how uh, companies are adopting new ways. We saw the whole wave of agile come into organizations that changed the way people are developing software, the way they're doing stuff. So the change management aspect is to make sure that your policies are up to date with how you're functioning or how your organization is functioning. In today's time, if you go out and create a specific policy, a five-page policy, which says that you are not allowed to plug in a USB in your computer, that's mm. going to be of no use because not a lot of people use USB sticks anymore. A lot of people are cloud-focused. So it's up to the policy team to define on how to implement that policy without actually making a whole new policy out of it. And these are the expertise that we require in the industry. And at the same time, make sure that we're keeping up with new technologies. So every time a company is coming in contact with a new vendor, if they're onboarding a new type of uh, uh, technology to perform a specific function, the policy team needs to be given an FYI, if not involved completely, to understand mm -hmm. if this impacts something 
and to see if the policy that we currently have in place satisfies the security requirements for this tool. And if not, they could definitely come up with a new draft and then just like go ahead from there. Interesting. So this uh, basically, if I had to distill your message, um, <laughs> there is a need to distill messages quite a bit in cybersecurity. What you're saying is that people with uh, the ability to communicate meaningful uh, sort of uh, detailed technical concepts in an abstract and non-technical way in a in a way that's like relatable to to you know business stakeholders and all that and also to simplify to a point where you're just you're just uh, conveying what needs to be conveyed and not too much more um this is where you think there's like a niche for for policy experts and people from like let's say non-stem fields to enter cybersecurity right Absolutely. It's, it's definitely one of the ways I have seen people from non-STEM fields come into more technical fields in cyber also. It just depends on your appetite for learning and how proactive you are in the early stages of your career. Because uh, uh, what there's this really nice article, it's called Paradox of Choice or Paradox of Security. I believe uh, I was on Twitter just looking through uh, profiles and I found this article. And I believe the author is called Azeria, A-Z-E-R-I-A. And it talks about how once you get into the field of cybersecurity, uh, you're stuck in this paradox because you, you can't choose what to do. I remember, Pratik, when we were having our first conversation, and I believe you were asking me just some general questions about things that can, you can do in cybersecurity, mm -hmm. I probably gave you a list of eight or 10 different fields. And that's, let's just say, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Once you mm. keep going in, there's OT security, which is operational security, like electrical grids, like train systems. There's uh, aviation security. There's security with every niche or every type of organization out there. And for people to come into security at an entry level, they have all these options open to them. And they just have to be proactive enough to identify what piques their interest and then go for it. And maybe one year down the line, they feel that there's something else that piqued their interest and go down the line. That's the methodology which I used. I did have a computer science background, but again, I didn't know that much about security, but uh, it's something that greatly helped me throughout my journey. Cool, very interesting. Um, so Lulu, did you wanna ask any more questions or add anything to this? Uh, I guess I have one more question is, so with uh, more and more people coming into the security and cybersecurity um, um, landscape. How would you think uh, moving forward, maybe maybe like five years or in, in ten years, how would the future of cybersecurity look? So it's uh, it's the solution to it is definitely resources on the employee side of people coming in, but also on the technology side. We did briefly touch on how ML and AI can definitely help security out. Currently, as we stand, I do believe that AI insecurity is being thrown around as a catchword, like just to get people peaks people's interest. Mm -hmm. But in the future, I do believe uh, there are certain technologies which are being developed, which could mimic the legwork that is done by employees and save them time. And then they could actually use that time to develop more security tools or better security practices inside the organization. And at the same time, a shift that I've seen in the past five years, and I believe it's going to replicate itself in the next five years, is the hiring of security at a management level, uh, not just like as managers or directors, but also as uh, C-level executives. So there's all sorts of CISOs out there which are now leading the charge in these organizations, sitting with the board of directors and making them understand 
why data privacy, why security, and why privacy is very important, and how it could benefit the organization. It's always been said that uh, security is one form, one department in an organization which keeps taking on money to implement stuff, but never gives anything back. But with these regulations coming into place and the fines which can be levied on an organization, uh, like for example, again, GDPR says that if you're found in violation to a certain extent, they'll charge you $20 million or 4% of your uh, net revenue for a year, Whoa. whichever is higher. So they don't go for the lower one. They say whichever one is higher. So if um, if your company earned, let's say, your four percent of your company net revenue is fifty million, that's what they're going to charge you. So this is like an eye opener to the board of directors, and they see that as an investment and an opportunity to actually not just gain the trust of their consumer, but also implement new practices to save them money in the future. Well, very very interesting conversation. Um, yep. I think we're gonna uh, wrap this up now i just wanted to ask you one last question omer um in terms of your career in terms of what you're looking to do um i know you're currently working with essence and stuff but long term what, what do you have in mind like what do you want to focus on what's your passion in, in cybersecurity? so i definitely would like to continue exploring the way i am uh, one of the reasons why I joined Essence and I do security on the side as a bug bounty hunter and stuff like that is it gives me the freedom to choose what type of security I want to implement, what what part of security I want to look into. So that's something that's very exciting. I'm trying to stay away from getting into that paradox where I don't know what to do anymore and mm -hmm. just like, you know, search for something new. But at the same time, I'm developing my skill sets. In the future, I do see myself as someone who's teaching security. I did get a couple opportunities in the past year to come in and become a part-time teacher, uh, make students like understand what security is from an organizational and a enterprise perspective. But I just believe that the timing wasn't right with the whole COVID scenario and everything. But uh, it does see like a right step from mentorship into education. And maybe in the future, I would definitely look into providing uh, advisory services in terms of security. So that would be more less of a nine to five job and more of a job in which I could leverage my skills at a certain amount of time and a specific time, which I find uh, apt. Amazing. Um, I really hope that uh, we at Project Alicia have a, have a chance to work with you more in future because my brain is lit up today just talking to you about all this stuff. Um, it's, it's, as you already know, I'm really passionate about cybersecurity and uh, we are trying our best to approach some of the same problems from a different direction, you know, with uh, with a, a more like more of a focus on like privacy and on machine learning and and improving the quality of the idea of like responsible, ethical, and privacy-preserving data practices. So mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, we'll be able to add value to people's lives in future, and and we'll have a chance to work more with you, Amir. Um, on that note, I would like to thank you very much for joining us today, and. Um, Hopefully, we will speak to you soon, and we will call it a day here. Yeah, thank you, Omer, for coming on. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Pratik. It was a, it was a really gay, a great talk, and I believe it's just, a, it's just like the foundation of this conversation, and we can definitely move forward and have more insightful conversations.